Chapter Fourteen of Carpenter's World Travels, Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland, by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter Fourteen in the Yukon Flats. I am right under the Arctic Circle at Fort Yukon. For days past, I have been steaming slowly down the Yukon River through the wilds of Alaska. This mighty stream rises only 25 miles from the Pacific Ocean in the headwaters of the Luz and the Pelly Rivers. It flows far into the interior of Canada's Yukon Territory, then bends toward the Bering Sea, where it ends its 2,000-mile course. The Yukon is one of the world's largest rivers. Only four on the North American continent, the Mississippi-Missouri, the Winnipeg-Nelson, the Mackenzie, and the St. Lawrence, surpass it in length, in the area of the basin drained. Here, in what are called the Yukon Flats, the stream is from 10 to 20 miles wide, and the channel winds sluggishly in and out among islands of all shapes and sizes. Some are circular, some oval, and some are perfect crescents of vegetation and sand. The waters are like glass, putty-colored during the daytime, and with all the hues of the rainbow when the sun rises or sets. Just now it is about midnight, and the river is one sheet of molten gold, or the hue of flowing copper as the metal pours forth from the furnace. At Whitehorse, the northern terminus of the White Pass Railway, I took the steamer which brought me on through the Canadian Yukon Territory and past Dawson. About nine hours after leaving Dawson, I crossed the international boundary and was once more on United States soil which I had left at Carcross on the railroad. The course of the Yukon from Whitehorse to Dawson is as picturesque as any part of the Rhine or the Danube, and the whole of the journey has all of the wildness and charm of a virgin country. In coming down the upper Yukon, we steamed by mountains rising to the clouds, passed by rocks like lofty castles, and wound our way among hills blanketed with pink flowers recalling the heather-clad hills of old scotland just inside the canadian boundary i saw two rocks facing each other on opposite sides of the river one bore the almost perfect face of a man whereas the profile of the other was that of a woman the rocks are known as the old man and the old woman a little farther downstream is a place where the yukon cuts its way through towering cliffs banded with a dozen different colors white, gold, black, brown, green, and red. The strata lie in undulating folds, like the stripes of a waving flag. They look rough enough to have been gnawed out by the snaggy teeth of old father time. In Europe, this rock formation would have some romantic title. Here it is called the Calico Bluff. As we went by it in the steamer, one of the passengers, who had a revolver, amused himself by sending bullets into the strata declaring in advance just which colored ribbon he expected to hit. Leaving the bluffs, we struck a patch of green forest and frightened two moose that had come to the river to drink. We saw a lynx swimming the river, and a mile farther on passed a fishing wheel, which, turned by the current, was scooping up pink salmon and throwing them into a wooden box at the end. Behind the wheel on the shore were the tents of the Athapascan Indians, who were thus laying in winter food for themselves and their dogs. I had been interested in the homes of the Athapascans 
on this part of the Yukon. They live in substantial log cabins painted in all the colors of the rainbow. Many of their houses have frame doors and glass windows. Some of these Indians are now planting gardens, and not a few use cook stoves and other furniture like that of the whites. Most of them have become Christians, although they retain many of their old superstitions and customs. The government has established public schools in all of the large villages, where the younger generation is learning to speak English. The Canadian boundary line is so marked that it can be easily seen. It is a wide strip cut through the woods, uphill and down dale, from south to north, from where our line ends near the Pacific Ocean to the Arctic Ocean. It starts within 30 miles of the Pacific and goes straight toward the North Pole for a distance of 875 miles. It is the longest continuous straight boundary line ever surveyed. We could see it from the steamer coming down the slopes on the south side of the river and climbing straight up to the hills at the north. At the international boundary, the Yukon is comparatively narrow. Its width varies according to the level of the river from 1,200 to 1,300 feet. It has two channels at that point, one of which is 600 feet wide and 20 feet deep, and the other 400 feet wide and 26 feet deep. The river widens as it leaves the boundary and keeps on its winding way through the hills for 200 or 300 miles until it reaches Circle, where the great inland sea of the Yukon Flats begins. Here in the flats, the land is low and built up by the silt of the river. The flats, which have an area almost as large as that of South Carolina, lie between the two ranges of mountains bordering Alaska at the north and the south. The Yukon corkscrews for 200 miles through these lowlands in a network of sloughs, great inland lakes, and oxbows made by the islands. The river stretches on and on as though it would drop into space, and the low wooded banks seem fences over which, if one climbed, one would fall into nothingness. Standing on the bridge of the steamer, one can almost look over the trees. The earth, as far as one can see, is flat. Everywhere the Yukon is at its work of earth building. Its waters are melting the prehistoric ice that begins two or three feet under the moss and muck covering, and great blankets of earth studded with trees fall down into the river. Sandbars rise in a season, and islands are created or swept away with the floods of one spring. There are no rocks anywhere. The bed of the river is silt, which goes down to great depths. There are so many channels among the islands that a man without a compass and sailing directions would surely get lost. Indeed, in the early days, the chichacos, or tenderfeet, coming here to get gold, were facetiously warned to beware of the Yukon Flats, as they might wander into channels that would lead them into the Arctic Ocean, instead of the main course of the river. Our steamer had spars at the side which could be dropped into the sand so that the engine could pry itself off in case it grounded on a newly made or uncharted shoal. The river is wonderfully quiet. Sometimes we sailed a hundred miles or more without seeing a town or any sign of habitation. The few men living along its course within the flats chop wood to sell to the steamers. The captain asked one of them the other day the price of the wood. The man replied, Dave Drollett has been telling around the neighborhood that I have been selling wood at five dollars a cord, but it ain't so. 
neighborhood indeed the man's nearest neighbor is forty miles off and dave drollett lives one hundred miles up the river this absence of man made the wilderness impressive the mighty stream and the great dome of the sky with its low-hung clouds which seemed always stationary made me feel but an atom in god's mighty world most of the time the only living things visible were those on our boat and the only noises the splashing of the paddle wheel at the stern the voices of the people on deck and the howls of the dogs we were carrying to the roadhouses downstream the first settlement over the international boundary is an indian village above which on a pole erected beside a log church floats the american flag nearby may be seen the black mast of the wireless station of boundary the first outpost of the signal corps of our army whose telegraph system covers the greater part of the territory still farther on is eagle the first american town on the yukon eagle prides itself on its americanism it has a poem celebrating the advantages of alaska over canada which was prepared as a greeting for the tourist on crossing the boundary i give you a part of one verse you may here forget there are crowns and kings ladies in waiting and such like things for now you are under the eagle's wings we could see the american flags of eagle even before we caught sight of the houses every cabin had a tail flagstaff attached to its roof and from the yukon i counted a dozen flags floating in the breeze the eagle of today is a has-been it is like the deserted mining camps of the west which were abandoned when the gold played out in its palmy days it was known as eagle city and had hundreds of inhabitants and all the riotous life that came from the successful diggings close by it still has about one hundred one-story log cabins but half of them are deserted and some are falling to ruins many of the cabins have gardens about them in which are large crops of potatoes and carrots the streets are grass-grown and grass and flowers grow luxuriantly on the dirt roofs of the cabins as our boat came to anchor i heard a rooster crowing and as i walked up the banks i could hear the bells of the cows pasturing near the town pump the town pump is one of the features of eagle it stands over a well and is worked by a windmill there is a tall white tower beside the windmill and a drinking place at the front in the days before prohibition eagle had a first-class saloon but no public school i asked one of the women why this was she replied the only revenue the town had was the one thousand dollar license paid by the saloon and it took all that to keep up the town pump leaving eagle we stopped next its circle another half-deserted village living on the memories of its past it sprang up in eighteen ninety two when gold was discovered on birch creek nearby and a little later it had a population of one thousand miners it boasted that it was the largest log cabin town in the world then the gold began to give out and most of the men left in the stampede to the klondike it has now many abandoned homes made of logs a store or so and a restaurant the population altogether is two or three hundred while the steamer was tied up there i called at the restaurant and its owner fred brentlinger showed me a pair of arctic ox horns which he had dug from the ice thirty feet under the ground these horns measure three feet from tip to tip and are well preserved he told me the price was five hundred dollars 
the whole country has the remains of prehistoric animals locked up in vaults of perpetual ice in the klondike there have been dug up the bones of mastodons and other giant animals of the past and nearly every town has a great ivory tusk or skeleton of an animal that lived in alaska before the ice age began curios made of such ivory are for sale in many of the stores and if one wants a tusk or tooth some hundred thousand years old it is easy to get it brentlinger has two bear cubs each of which lives in a ten-gallon keg back of the restaurant they are as black as ink and as lively as kittens it is wonderful how tame these alaskan bears become when caught as cubs and treated as pets i find some in every mining settlement there are two here at fort yukon within a stone's throw of where the steamer lands they watch for the stranger and will eat and drink out of his hand i have amused myself feeding them pop out of a bottle i buy the pop at jim haley's roadhouse and the bears will drink it out of a bottle while i hold it in my hand or i can give the bottle to bruin and he will sit down and drink it all by himself fort yukon is just inside the arctic circle and at this time of the year it is light for twenty-four hours it is the most northerly point on the yukon river and a fine place to see the midnight sun i have experimented here with taking photographs at midnight my snapshots are fairly good and with the gentle squeeze of the bulb i got the best of results fort yukon has been of great importance as a mining center but is today better known as a fur trading post the hudson's bay company used to come here to buy furs and boat loads are now brought down the porcupine river by the indians and other fur traders the porcupine is navigable for two hundred and twenty-five miles or as far as rampart house on the other side of the international boundary one of our passengers was dan cadzo the trader who lives there he left us here to go up the porcupine to his trading station everyone in alaska has heard of dan cadzo he is one of the biggest traders of the far north cadzo is content to live almost all alone in the wilds two hundred miles from the nearest settlement his home is about one hundred and fifty miles south of the arctic ocean a little farther from fort mcpherson on a branch of the mackenzie and two hundred and twenty-five miles from fort yukon nevertheless he likes it he said to me today i am mighty glad to get back from outside i am tired of the crowd and want to be where it is quiet again i asked him to tell me about his home in the wilderness he replied my house is about sixteen by forty with wings at the side it is made of logs and lined with the best beaver board we have double windows and our wood stoves keep us warm as toast though the thermometer sometimes goes down to seventy degrees below zero tell me something about your store it is just over the boundary in canada and i take my goods there in my own steamer up the porcupine river most of the freight on this trip belongs to me my stock is worth about twenty thousand dollars i use it to trade with the indians eskimos and white trappers who hunt there for furs we have the best of goods get high prices and pay cash for furs we buy thousands of dollars worth of furs every season most of them come from the indians for there are not a half a dozen white men in the whole country we are so far away that we did not know there was a war in nineteen fourteen until we came out with our furs in nineteen fifteen you see our nearest mail station is here at fort yukon 
and we have to go four hundred and fifty miles every time we call at the post office. End of chapter 14